Captain Kirk. Fascinating. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. Thank you, thank you. Love you. Most illogical. I saw. Well, that was different. Yep, rousy, but different. Places, please. And here we go. Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, bears, kelpians, and things to episode 35 of the Muppet Trick Podcast. I'm Steve. And I'm Jarman, and we are here to compare, contrast, and confer about our two favorite franchises. And what are those, Steve? Oh, the Muppets and Star Trek. Oh, yeah. And we have been doing, and will continue to do, one-to-one reviews of The Muppet Show and Star Trek, the original series. Because we're crazy. And uh, tonight, we're we're covering The Muppet Show with special guest star Steve Martin and Star Trek original series episode, The Doomsday Machine. So, Steve, you got to tell us, who is this uh, Steve Martin? Steve Martin. No, it's Steve Martin. (laughs) Oh, Okay. (laughs) Uh, an American comedy legend. And if you don't know who Steve Martin is, I am as outraged as our British listeners were when we didn't know who Bruce Forsyth was. That is fair. <laughs> that would be the equivalent outrage, I think. Our British listeners, if you have context to Steve Mar- who Steve Martin is, let me know if I'm close. Is he just famous for being famous? Like, is that what it is? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. We just lost our three British listeners. Oh, I'm sorry, guys. Sorry, Paul. <laughs> sorry, Dan. <laughs> sorry, Dan. Hitch, Paul. Sorry. Sorry, Mike. <laughs> uh, so known for movies like The Jerk and L.A. Story and The Three Amigos, he is a comedy icon and also a hell of a banjo player. Hell of a banjo player, yeah. But this week on The Muppet Show, it's a little bit weird. He's backstage getting ready, uh, making faces, and Scooter assures him he's going to fit right in. But then Kermit comes out on stage and announces that the show has been canceled that week because they're supposed to have auditions. Whoa. The audience leave. Steve Martin hit the stage with just kind of the Muppets around uh, who have also just heard the show is canceled. He is really, really put out and he gets the obligatory excuse me out of the way. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Just out of the way for the episode. Thank God. And the auditions begin. The first audition is the Latrex sisters and the garbage can can and they are rats and they do a cute can can number. Yeah. Up next, we have Mary Louise and friend. Her shtick is that she sings a familiar song, but a frog sings the word ribbit in place of a popular lyric. Uh, the first one is old folks at home way down upon the Swanee ribbit. Uh, she doesn't get very far before she is hooked off stage vaudeville style. Mm-hmm. Following this, Steve Martin comes out to audition, quote unquote, or at least perform for the guys. We get a classic Steve Martin balloon animal gag. It's something that he did on talk shows and it was seen all over the place. Uh, um, he, he then talks about stealing a, a baby balloon only to then be attacked by a balloon that carries him off in a fantastical end. Uh, then we get Terry Louise and friend, which is the same girl in frog. Uh, they sing tie a yellow ribbit around the old oak tree. And then she is once again, pulled off stage. <laughs> Taking the stage is Baskerville a comedy dog who's very reminiscent of Fozzie that makes Fozzie worry uh, when Kermit sort of assures and brush Fozzie off. Then we get Lenny the lizard who's there to audition to be the MC, which makes Kermit really nervous as <laughs> Fozzie mocks him back. Deserved. Uh, a weird little act hit the stage for kazoos, aliens from Coosbane who together play their bodies to make a symphony of noises. Mm-hmm. It's kind of strange. Gonzo then tries to pitch an axe to Kermit, which he doesn't want to hear about until he tells him about dancing female cheese. 
then Kermit finds out that the next act is Gonzalez and Miranda, which is Gonzo in like a flamenco outfit, while Cheese literally dances next to him. Is the cheese is female? <laughs> of course, it'd be ridiculous to dance with a male. Um, following this is Carrie Louise and Frandel singing Old Man Ribbit and is uttered just before she's dragged off stage to reveal that Piggy is back there threatening her. <laughs> with physical violence, probably. Uh, taking the stage again is Steve Martin playing Ramblin' Guy. This is one of his classic bits, and uh, I'll discuss it a little bit more later. After Statler and Waldorf take the stage performing the varsity drag with some impressive dance moves. Oh, yeah. And this time Fozzie finally gets to heckle them back from the balcony. Up next, we get Marvin Zuggs normally playing the Muppaphone, but this week he's conducting singing food, performing Yes, We Have No Bananas Today. It's cute and filled with food puns. Hmm. Uh, after this, we get Steve Martin doing more shtick, this time juggling oranges. Following this, we get the Flying Zucchini Brothers performing a cannonball act. That's an absolute classic. Um, finally, Steve tells Kermit that he's sad he won't get to perform the song that he uh, practiced with the jug band. And when Kermit bites a little bit, the jug band comes out and they perform dueling banjos. And it's a great end. And a lot of the previous acts get to chime in or get seen again. It ends with Steve ducking a flying zucchini brother being shot from a cannon. Kermit thanks not the audience for Steve Martin not being the host. And that is not what we call the Muppet Show this week. <laughs> yes. Jarman, what did you think of this week's episode? Um, I thought it was good for being unique and very different from the standard you know, formula that we're used to. Um, that kind of threw me off right away off the get bad. He's like, oh, there's no show today. We're doing rehearse. We're doing auditions. Like, oh, cool. Interesting. Um, but surprisingly... I used to listen to a Steve Martin album when I was a kid. I had this, that and a Jerry Seinfeld album I listened to before I go to bed on my, my Disman I had when the CD would skip if I ran over on it. But, uh, and I thought it was really funny, but he just wasn't funny to me in this. I mean, it was just a sign of the times. It's been like, it's an old fashioned kind of humor, but it wasn't funny. I don't know. So he was just so distinct at the time and different because you got to figure at this time we were still at like punchline comics. Yeah, I guess they're getting more, more edgy at this point, too. So he's going back to being more silly, I guess, which is kind yeah, of silly and strange and absurd. Very um, absurd. At a time when people were telling were still telling jokes. Yeah, he had no jokes. He just wanted to be goofy and silly and which is fun. It's just like I think I was used to his um, stand up. I listened to I think it was also from the late 70s, but it was yeah. it was more jokes, setups and jokes. Um, but yeah, it's not like he was bad. He was just, and then once he played banjo though, I was like all on board. Cause he's really yeah. good at banjo. What'd you think of the non Steve parts of the episode? Those parts. I was, I was a lot of fun. Like I enjoy, I really, I felt bad for what's the woman's name. who changed her name three times when she went on stage. Mary Louise, Carrie Louise. Yeah. Louise, <laughs> like yeah. just kept being yanked off earlier and earlier each time <laughs> Now I got to laugh out of that. Um, but not a lot of laugh out loud moments in the episode i thought but i really also loved that statler and waldorf got to come out and perform that was unexpected that was nice it's fun to get to see them do a little bit more yeah and see them get heckled for a change um and the last number i thought was awesome just incorporating the, all of the acts i thought that was a really great idea yeah, they bringing all, in a bunch of them that was good they all mixed them in good. together in a good way so that was really cool so i think it was upper middling episode for me just personally but what about you yeah, absolutely uh i agree some of the steve martin stuff was a little bit jarring and and slow like he didn't quite know what to do with himself yeah uh, they used a lot of the actual soundtrack from the studio so steve was kind of performing for the the guys mm. um and so a lot of their laughter and character can be heard as he's performing but maybe it was just too small of an audience for him to read correctly and it just came off a little weird 
Oh, so that was actually them laughing in real time kind of thing? Yeah. You can uh, hear them like laughing in I did. It, it, it was actually. very small amount of laughter, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the sound is much more live in this episode. If you, if you ever rewatch it, you'll feel it. It's not canned um, laughter, yeah. But I, I felt, you know, for an episode that didn't have any of the staples, mm-hmm. you didn't have Veterinary's Hospital, you didn't have Swine, you know, Swine Track, you didn't have anything, any of that, and was just little vignettes, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, very different. So it kept it stayed entertaining throughout, but just nothing, nothing standing out in a big and way. Nothing was crazy long, and it felt because there were so many of these quick things. You know, the can can with the rats, and Mary Terry and Carrie Louise um, interspersed, and, and there was a lot of Steve. It featured the guest star really well. That is true. It packed in a ton of stuff, a ton of music. My music section is a little bit nuts because of how much they packed in. Um, I just think it had a lot of staples of a top episode well because they didn't have a like a separate backstage story so they could kind of they had enough time to kind of put number after number after number kind of thing right and honestly i think that the terry carey the 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 louise and ribbit whatever uh, (laughs) is what filled what would typically be those quick backstage cutaways that's true and so they just they structured the episode the same way they just filled it differently but it still felt good and it felt full yeah i don't know well we can disagree I don't think that Steve was necessarily the best host, but this, I think, is a good episode. It's, it's this show always surprises me that all the people, the hosts I know the best typically aren't the best hosts on this oh, show. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's weird. Absolutely. Very weird. Uh, okay, music this week. Mm-hmm. The Can Can by Jock Offenbach. He's famous for writing almost 100 operettas. Uh, he was apparently a big a friends with like Napoleon. Napoleon was a big fan of his, and that's ultimately what led to his downfall uh, when being associated with Napoleon wasn't really cool anymore. Yeah. For whatever reason. Uh, Old Folks at Home, the state anthem of Florida in the U.S. since 1935, written by a guy named Stephen Foster, who's also often called the uh, father of American music. And he wrote things like Oh, Susanna and Camp Town Races. We learned about him in school growing up in Florida. You learned about him. Oh, yeah. His death, though, is now contested. The official story is that he got a really bad fever and fell and cut his neck open so bad that when his writing partner found him, he was naked in a pool of his own blood. Oh, my God. Uh, but it's since been speculated that he probably committed suicide and that it was like covered up and denied to, to maintain Oof, his image. That's terrible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree recorded by Tony Orlando and the Dawn. They're also known for performing uh, knock three times. Knock three times. Levine and Brown, a duo. Brown recounted that the song's based off the story he heard about a civil war veteran coming back to his betrothed. And he basically said, tie a yellow ribbon around this one oak tree. So th- to let me know if you still love me. Mm. That way I don't come all the way to see you only to see you one last time and be turned away. That's depressing. So if he sees the yellow ribbon, it's because she still loves him. Oh yeah. I hope she does. Uh, Old man river by Kernan Hammerstein from the musical showboat. Fun fact, Kern and his wife bought a luxurious yacht and named it the showboat. <laughs> Old man uh, river. Uh, Ramblin' Man from Steve Martin's comedy album, Let's Get Small, that would have been released relatively recently before this episode. Mm. Uh, this album is what it introduced excuse me as like an American catchphrase. <laughs> and won album, uh, won a Grammy uh, in 78 for best comedy album. Mm. 
Uh, the varsity drag by a guy named Ray Henderson. Uh, he later became notable for songs like Bye Bye Blackbird. And I'm sitting on top of the world. I'm sitting on top of the world. Um, and wrote just a bunch of other vaudeville hits. Gotcha. Yes, we have no bananas. <laughs> From song songwriting duo Silver and Cone, this was a number one hit for five weeks in 1927, believe it or not. <laughs> what? The title comes from when uh, Silver stopped at a fruit stand on the way to a gig that was run by a Greek man who started every sentence by saying, yes, regardless of what he said afterwards. <laughs> and in Britain during the world wars, um, there was apparently a five year embargo on bananas, hmm. but in keeping with the positive nature of the war effort, uh, apparently shops all over the, the UK featured signs that said, yes, we have no bananas today. <laughs> Instead of no, we don't have any bananas. Right. So it may actually, so our British listeners, let me know if it's, if this is possibly part of your, your cultural zeitgeist in some way. Interesting. Yeah. I was listening to that song. I was like, I can't wait to st- for Steven to tell me the history of the songs. It sounds like they made this up. <laughs> like they made this up for the uh, episode, obviously. Dueling banjos while made popular by 72's the deliverance. It was actually first made popular in 54 under the name feuding banjos oh. written by a man named Arthur guitar boogie Smith. <laughs> And everywhere I saw his name, Guitar Boogie was in the middle. That's Mr. Guitar Boogie to you. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, Jarman, what was your favorite Muppeteering moment this week? Uh, it's hard to say, but something I didn't know how they did, so I thought it was interesting, was the Zucchini Brothers and how they did. I mean, because I didn't see any wires, obviously, so how they shot them out of that cannon. I doubt they did composite or green screen because that wasn't that'd probably be too difficult. So they really shot him twice, once in the wall. I saw it cut quickly where he crashes in the wall. So that was a different cut. But then right. when it flew over, you know, Steve Martin's head, that was impressive. That was the timing. very quick. quick yeah. Step. So I don't know how they did it. So I was really impressed by that. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go also with the Flying Zucchini Brothers, but less the the aerials and more just like the performers interacting. Go, go. He get, tries to get in head first at first. <laughs> like, oh, feet first. Feet first. Feet first. Feet first. <laughs> that was cute. Um, and, and just Frank Oz and the guys like clearly playing. That's having a good time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, Jarman, tell us about this week's episode of Star Trek, the original series we watched. Oh, yeah. So this time we watched the Doomsday Machine and was actually won the Hugo Award uh, for best script for a sci fi television show in 1968. So a year after the next year, basically. Wow. Okay. So it's, you know, it's it, critics like it. Um, so basically we had the Enterprise. Um following a trail of these mysteriously destroyed planets in a star system. Basically, the entire solar system is destroyed, and they're trying to figure out why. They, can't, they don't have any regular signatures of like a star exploding, and so it, it doesn't make any sense. So when they get there in this solar system, they see that there's another Constellation-class uh, ship like theirs, which is actually the USS Constellation, um, and it's heavily damaged. It's just drifting in space. So... They beam over and they can't find anybody on the ship. And they finally, in one room, find the Commodore Decker, who is the head of that ship. I'm not sure why he's a Commodore and not a, a captain of a ship, but he's a Commodore. And he's basically passed out on, on, on a desk. And they basically try to get him back to being normal again. And he's in shock. He can't tell them what's going on. They give him some drugs. And he finally tells them some giant machine apparently destroyed everything in the solar system and in order to save his crew from it just destroying his ship he's beating them all down to a planet and then that planet was destroyed so basically his whole crew was killed and he's just in shock he can't handle it meanwhile kirk is just screaming at him <laughs> like not having any sympathy whatsoever 
Tell her what happened, man. Come on, man. So they, um, Kirk wants to stay behind with Scotty to figure out what happened with the Constellation, see if they can get it back up and running so they can get it out of there. Um, and they beam Decker back over to the Enterprise. But Commodore Decker's still not all well. So he starts trying to take command of the Enterprise. And he states some regulation rules that he can take over the Enterprise since he's the commanding officer there ahead of Spock and everyone else. And Bones is pissed off about this because Decker wants to go back and try to destroy this giant doomsday device that's there. And Spock's like, we can't do that. The thing is impenetrable. We scanned it. We can't do any damage to it. That'd be ridiculous. But he insists. And then Bones is trying to say, oh, well, I can take you off of command because I can just say that you're, you're mentally unwell. And Spock reminds him that, well, unless you have the paperwork to back that up, you can't do that, Bones. So they're stuck uh, with Future ruined by bureaucracy. <laughs> bureaucracy. And Spock <laughs> is very, you know, to the letter about Starfleet uh, business. So they have to listen to Decker. He takes over the Enterprise and they can't get in communication with Kirk back on the Constellation. So meanwhile, they're going over to go attack this giant doomsday device, which looks like a cigar, basically. And <laughs> we'll talk about that later. But uh, and they can't do any damage to it. So all eventually Kirk is getting the, the constellation up and running a little bit enough to see out the view screen that he sees the Enterprise going on a collision course for the doomsday device. And he's like, Scotty, you got to give me some power. We got to be able to do something to help them. So he finally gets him enough power to go over there and just shoot like one phaser at the doomsday device to distract it. So it doesn't take uh, destroy the Enterprise. And so they play a little game of shooting it back and forth. The Enterprise shoots it, the constellation shoots it so they can distract it enough to get away from it in time. But they uh, are realizing they're not going to have enough time to get away from it before they can contact Starfleet because their warp drives are down because they were damaged in the fight with the Doomsday device. So in that amount of time, uh, they take finally um, Spock says that this mission to go destroy the Doomsday device that Decker is obsessed with is a suicide mission. So that means he actually is not fit for duty anymore and he can take him off command. So they take him off command and Decker escapes and goes and gets to an escape pod and tries to, a shuttlecraft, and tries to go down the gullet of the doomsday device to destroy it. But the little shuttle pod is not strong enough, so it just, goes, poof, poof, it's gone. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently Kirk and Decker used to be friends. They've known each other for a long time, so he's kind of yeah, broken up. He calls him Matt. Is that their name? What is, the, what is his first name? Uh, William Decker. Yeah. Oh, no, no. Sorry. Matt Decker. You're right. William's the actor who yeah, played him. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so he's like, he calls him Matt throughout. Matt, don't, Matt, we need you. We need you. So, but they notice that after the, the little shuttlecraft blows up, a little bit of power drain happens in the Doomsday Machine. So Spock and Kirk realize that if a bigger amount of explosion happened inside instead of on the outside, they might be able to destroy it. So Kirk devises a plan to get a 30-second timer and a bomb that'll basically blow up the constellation once it goes into the gullet of the Doomsday Machine. So he sets the the device to go off. He sends Scotty back to the Enterprise, but then the transporter malfunctions after Scotty gets back, so they can't get Kirk back to the ship. So it's counting down now, 30 seconds until the Constellation enters into the Doomsday device, and Kirk's going to be destroyed with the ship. And just the very last second, Scotty runs up and fixes it, and they beam him back on board, and that's the end of the episode. They blow up the Doomsday machine, it just shuts down and, and falls limp, and that's the end of that. And they don't know where it came from, they don't know what, where, why it's there, or if there's more of them, but one is enough for Captain Kirk, so he says. Yeah. So that's, that is the Doomsday machine. What did you think of this one, Steve? Um, it was for you, so it had a lot of hallmarks of episodes I really like. Mm -hmm. uh, in, an indirect villain so, like, yes, the Doomsday Machine was the villain, but Decker was the antagonist. Yeah. Ultimately. 
and and the villain with the face. So they they did it both ways, and it balanced really well. I he was felt. he was his own worst enemy, basically. Decker's own desperation and madness over this like reflected the fear and the impending doom of this thing coming. That's true. Um, other things I liked this episode was more cinematic than most. There were a lot more camera movements, like coordinated camera movements and interesting shots and angles used than normal. I could see that. Yeah, I noticed it almost right away. I was like, oh, that camera moved a lot there. Oh, okay. Um, there were big consequences but not in a way that felt hokey or forced like some of the episodes where they're saving the universe. Right. <laughs> like this thing was like a monolith, something crazy that someone unleashed to destroy the world. And it's not even that it's going to destroy earth or destroy all of Starfleet, but it's heading through this massive, highly populated part of the galaxy. It's true. It's a, a threat, so, threat later on. Yeah. I, right, right, right. But I just like that it was big consequences and it made sense. and didn't feel forced for like once. <laughs> enjoy it while it lasts uh and i enjoyed watching spock clearly being uh, how written acted both whatever clearly being against decker and working against him while still having to maintain his logical choice of of staying in his position it's a battle and doing what was required of him and it was well written well acted some well directed a mix of all three who knows but it really communicated well. Nice. I will say on that, um, oh, yeah. real quickly on that thing you were saying that this was a lot of camera angles. It's a little different, more cinematography. The director of this, Mark Daniels, it was like a TV director god. He did so much stuff: Gunsmoke, Bonanza, all sorts of damn shows. Um, and they, he actually made a bet that he could uh, film the whole episode in one day shorter than they they said he could. And since he he did that, he got a five hundred dollar bonus on the episode, <laughs> and Whoa. and he also got it to where they composed an entirely original score for this entire episode. So they he just was able to pull a lot of strings and get this to be as best as it could be. Right. So He's, right when you're that guy, you can call people and you know a guy, right? And so he made things happen. So that's why I think it had that. Who's doing your music? No, no, no. I got a guy. Eh, I got a guy. He'll, he'll do it. He'll do it. <laughs> anyway, sorry to interrupt. Uh, things I maybe disliked a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, the Commodore did better as the episode went on, but his opening acting was so jarring <laughs> and so big, but then it mellowed out and it got really good. And I don't, it was just weird choices at the beginning. And I don't know why. Well, I, the rest was good. Can I tell you why? Tell me why. So this is kind of overlapping with our next segment here. But um, according to William Wyndham, the guy who played Decker, he did not enjoy working on the show. He said that William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy were not getting along at the time, which made the set's atmosphere tense. He also said that he felt like the episode was silly, so he purposefully overacted. <laughs> he says some of the. But I didn't think all of it was overacted. No, but especially that first part. It was just like, oh, uh, God. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> Thank God. How could I? He said it wasn't until oh, many years gosh. later that he respected the episode because he realized he was supposed to be Captain Ahab from Herman Melville's Moby Dick. He didn't realize it was a yeah. reference. And he would have respected it more if he realized that at the time, but he didn't realize. <laughs> Anyways, that's just related to what you said. So I had to say something. 
Um, and then the only other thing that just felt uh, the thing that felt forced was there were a lot of big logic leaps in about 45 seconds to get to the doomsday machine conclusion. Oh, <laughs> it was like back to back rambling thoughts from, from Kirk that he just came to this conclusion that this what this thing. was. I never noticed oh until God. doing this show with you that how many times he does this, they give him this dialogue to shoehorn in the, 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 the title of the show. And I'm like, why are they doing this? There's no need. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was just this big rambling monologue that kind of ended at it's a doomsday mission. Don't you know, Spock? Spock? It was released. It's people gone long ago. <laughs> That's a lot of theories, but we gotta destroy it. It's a devil, I tell you. Bones, it's exposition. We gotta put it somewhere. <laughs> So that's the I'll only thing she didn't my like. Shirt and let's get down to a planet. <laughs> Let me rip my shirt apart. Here we go. All right. Um, so that was that. <laughs> that little stretch made me giggle and kind of go, what just happened? It was so good in a clean episode. It's the same as his monologue about the changeling a couple episodes ago. It's a changeling, you know, or it's the apple from Eden, you know. <laughs> it's like, okay, stop. <laughs> Eden, if it killed you. Like, you know, God, just we get it. <laughs> to really just Hopefully explain it to us. Hopefully they refine this shit in the next generation. <laughs> I think so. I like to think so. Uh, so you got some more factoids for us? Yeah, I've a couple here. Um, some fun stuff. Uh, James Doohan's favorite episode, the guy who plays Scotty, for its highlighting of the engineering aspects of the Star Trek world, which I think is very true. That's true. He was like the clutch guy at the right moment. Yeah, that's what I really liked about this episode was a lot of Star Trek-y tech stuff was what saved the day, you know, which is kind of neat. Um sure. Uh, Captain Will- Willard Decker from Star Trek, the motion picture, uh, which you'll remember played by Stephen Collins, the guy from, I believe <laughs> he's from, uh, Is that, I actually saw that heard the name and I wasn't sure if there was some, yeah, there's a relation. Uh, Commodore Decker is his father. So that's the uh-huh. son of Commodore Decker. Um, yeah. And also, Do I think Stephen reference Co- to that in the movie. I don't know if they do, but they, he's, I think he recognizes that he knows him and that he, he's kind of like on huh. good terms. I'll rewatch. I'll rewatch that. Man. Yeah. Now that we've seen this, we need to rewatch and see if they actually do mention it. Um, okay. But- yeah, yeah. Yeah. Even a, even a, like I, I knew your father would be <laughs> enough to go. Oh, Ooh, inside thing. Machine paid off. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So there was the, the model designer, uh, Norman Spinrad was displeased with the model used for this, the planet killer. Um, and apparently he envisioned the doomsday machine bristling with all sorts of evil looking weapons. But for budgetary reasons, the actual doomsday machine model was made by dipping a windsock in cement. And if you see the original cut, not the special edition, you'll see how bad it looks. It's just a windsock dipped in cement, <laughs> which they redid Man. digitally to make it look pretty. But it still looks kind of yeah, like I a wanna, cigar. I want to see. Yeah, it kind of looks like a cigar and a sandworm kind of <laughs> yes. at a baby. You need to go look at the original. It's funny. Okay. Um, and this is a cool thing. It's not necessarily canon, but it's kind of canon. In the Star Trek novel, Vendetta, uh, author Peter Data related that the planet killer was actually a prototype for a much larger version. The weapon had been built by a race called the Preservers, who were fighting and losing a war with the Borg. So hmm. the planet killer was actually built by them to fight the Borg, which I thought was really cool. Huh. I like that retroactively think that's just the case in my mind. That's That's the canon now. <laughs> so that's crazy. So that means that this thing just came from the Delta Quadrant. Oh my gosh. I'm so proud of you for knowing that. See, I know some <laughs> things from movies and stuff we did. Uh, well, what's our Trek connection, Muppet connections this week? Oh, man. Okay. So Steve Martin had some real nice things to say about Leonard Nimoy when he died on Twitter. Oh. Uh, so sad about Leonard Nimoy, who was ever engaged, vital, interesting, and interested. 
That's nice. Mark. That's very nice. William Wyndham, who played Commodore Decker, did one shots on tons of shows. His acting sheet is a mile long, including The Love Boat, which, as I have established, everyone was on The Love Boat at some point. <laughs> yes. Including many Muppet Show hosts, including. Vincent Price, Rita Moreno, Connie Stevens, Paul Williams, Sandy Duncan, Florence Henderson, Harvey Corman, Valerie Harper, Ruth Buzzy, Phyllis Diller, Juliet Prowse, Milton Berle, Jim Neighbors, Nancy Walker, Ben Vereen, Ethel Merman, Avery Schreiber, and Kay Ballard. And that's just of the episodes we have watched so far. I was going to say, more. that's like every episode we've done. <laughs> Not every, but damn close it was a lot wow it's a lot dude that's it's a ton the more i went down the crossover i was like oh my god all of these people it was, everybody was on love boat everybody was <laughs> are you telling me dom DeLuise was not on love boat maybe i missed him i may have missed him. <laughs> i'd be surprised if he wasn't <laughs> um yeah so that was just a crazy connection that he was on william Wyndham was on love boat and so was so many muppets <laughs> that's really funny and those are my those are my connections. It was a rough week. That's all right. Mind. That's a pretty big one in a way. So what yeah. uh, similarities did you find between these two exact same episodes? Someone uh, both feature someone threatening a takeover, Commodore Decker and Lenny the Lizard. Oh, uh, OK. I have uh, Steve Martin is frustrated. He won't be able to perform just as Decker is mad. He can't perform as captain of the Enterprise. Oh, uh, <laughs> pretty bad. Uh, both feature our favorite characters outside of where we would normally see them. Kirk and Scotty on another ship and Kermit and the gang in the audience. That's true. Uh, I have Steve Martin is blown away by a balloon, just like the planets are blown away by the doomsday machine. Wow. <laughs> Both feature things firing the phasers of the enterprise <laughs> and the constellation and the zucchini brothers. That's perfect. That's perfect. They're basically the same episode. Oh yeah, absolutely. I agree. What the hell is that? What? what? <gasps> I don't know. Transporter malfunction. All right, so now it's the part of the episode where we transport one character from one episode to the other episode and vice versa. So what you got for us, Steve? Uh, I've got Decker coming over and replacing Lenny the Lizard. Oh. And he's, he goes on like, they took them all. They're all gone. And everyone thinks it's a real word audition. But then he goes down and like take Kurt, takes Kermit's seat and tries to convince everyone he's in charge now. <laughs> I had a uh, Decker transport over to take Steve Martin's place and he just gets angrier and crazier throughout when he isn't able to perform. <laughs> Makes sense. Uh, from the Muppets to Trek, I've got Marvin, Marvin Suggs coming over and replacing commander Decker uh, <laughs> because with how much William Wyndham overacted, I'm not sure anyone would know the difference. Yeah, that's probably true. I have a, uh, <laughs> Like people are gone. I have the Zucchini brothers transported over to play the Doomsday Machine. <laughs> so <laughs> just them flying yes. boom, boom, and they shoot out one of their brothers, destroy a planet, and he comes back and he flies back to the ship and the, or to the oh, cannon. No, first, Luigi. <laughs> <laughs> we can't get through their hole, Captain. The cannon is too strong. <laughs> I can get on board with this. Yeah, so that was that was my for that. <laughs> so that brings us to the end of episode 35 of the Muppet Trek podcast. Join us next time for the Muppet Show with special guest Lou Rawls. An original series episode, Cat's Paw. So from the lovers, the dreamers, and us. Live long and prosper, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Muppet Trek podcast. 
Be sure to follow us on social media on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. This podcast has been brought to you by A Play on Nerds. 